You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome, this is Radio Free Philosophy, and I'm Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricue. And we're going to be your hosts uh, every week to discuss some issues in philosophy, hopefully some of which will, will be of practical benefit to you. I suspect all of them are, in essence, going to be of practical benefit at some point, don't you? Of course. It's a wonderful compliment to the lectures and the textbook. And uh, the, the first thing I think we should probably try to convince people of, because I think it does take convincing, is not only is philosophy important and interesting, but that it is practical. I mean, it's useful in a more than just esoteric, get-your-degree sort of sense. Sure. Many people think that philosophy is done in an ivory tower and kind of make fun of philosophers. But I don't think anything's more practical than philosophy. Uh, I guess one way to approach that, I know you talk a lot about this when you teach philosophy, because we've had this conversation before, that philosophy begins in wonder. And that's kind of an interesting way to put it, but, but what in the world does that mean? Well, who hasn't had the experience of wonder? Everyone wonders. We wonder about the future. We wonder about the past. We wonder about the sky, the stars. We wonder about pain and suffering. We wonder about love. Who doesn't wonder? And so that, I guess, is uh, where philosophy begins. I wonder, though, I mean, I'm, here I am wondering, so obviously we're, we're, <laughs> we're already doing philosophy. But sometimes I wonder whether that sense of wonder is something natural or innate or not? Well, for as long as we've known human beings to be conscious of being human, we seem to have some records that people wondered. They wondered about the success of the hunt when they made those cave paintings in Lascaux in southwestern France. They wondered about the success of their harvest when they made these uh, these statuettes of a female goddess of fertility. Um, they wondered when they, they invented their myths and their fables about the origins of the world and the destruction of the world. They wondered about their own personal relationships when they made laws. So, yeah, people yeah, have always wondered. It's, it's unavoidable, isn't it? There's a, there's a wonderful show that was on years ago, uh, James Burke, the historian, uh, called the, Days, uh, uh, the Day the Universe Changed. And the first episode, he gives an interesting example of exactly what you're talking about, this notion of wonder. Because he, he has this thing, and you can't quite tell what it is, and he's trying to illustrate the fact that humans are almost innately curious and are driven to, to look for answers. And he, he takes this thing, like I say, that you don't even know what it is, and he puts it down in front of the camera and says, you want to know what that is, don't you? And, of course, everybody uh, says, yeah, you know, what, what that is. And then he shows, you know, how you take it apart and you look at it. And that's really, I think you're right, where philosophy starts because we want to know how does that work? What does this mean? Why am I here? What am I doing? What am I supposed to be doing? And I guess the question is for, for philosophers to deal with, once people ask those questions, how does philosophy deal with that? Or what does philosophy do in response to, the, to that questioning? That, that for instance... Uh, poetry or, or music or religion wouldn't do. That's right. We, we wonder in a way that other animals don't, it would seem to me. 
we aren't just curious. We call cats curious, chimpanzees curious. Um, curiosity seems to be a search for what makes things work. But we want to know much more than what makes things work. We want to know why, the whys of things. And those are the ultimate questions that cause philosophy to come into being. What is our purpose on earth? Why do we suffer? What's the meaning of life? What's the right thing to do? These are all forms of wondering. And it's much deeper than just curiosity. Now, what do we do? I guess this is a question philosophers themselves have to answer, maybe to justify their own, own existence. But I wonder what we do when we seem to be incapable of providing the answer to that question. Because I, I get this all the time when I teach philosophy. Students will say, well, I mean, that's a good question, and I think about that too, but you're not giving me the answer. So what, what good are you? You're not helping me. You're just giving me all, all kinds of stuff that people have said before, and I don't understand it anyway. That's really good, because I get the same questions when I teach religion. Give me an answer. People want to, they want to know. And both religion and philosophy are responses to that deep sense of wonder. Religion has one answer, and philosophy has another answer. And ultimately... You wonder if there are any final answers, because both are forms of searches, ongoing searches. The history of philosophy is a history of a search for meaning, and the history of religion is a series of successive searches for meaning. As far as I know, neither one has come to the answer. Which makes me think maybe it's not the answer that's the key, at least in this world, uh, assuming, uh, as many people do, that there, there's another world to come. But maybe it's the journey itself. Uh, I know Heidegger once said, questioning is the piety of thought. Mm. He, he didn't say answering is the piety <laughs> of thought. So maybe it's the questioning itself. And uh, something else I know that, that questioning does for many people, and I'm, I'm not sure it's a bad thing, is it shakes them up a little. It, it bothers them. It sort of throws them off base. Uh, you know, Spinoza uh, once said very famously, uh, I don't even know how to teach philosophy without becoming a disturber of the peace. And there might be something good to that, you know, that, that, we're, that we're doing that. I think so, because I don't know how to teach religion without becoming a disturber of the peace. We, um, and we're probably going to do a whole, uh, whole show on philosophy and religion and yes, see if we I can disturb so. uh, all kinds of peace. Sure. And it seems that religion and philosophy have different answers. Religion seems to put forward belief, some kind of faith that this is the answer. But philosophy is not satisfied with that. Philosophy wants to say, let's look in our own human reason, our own ability to think, and let's keep testing, and let's keep dialoguing with others. And that's kind of what we're doing here, don't you think, Kevin? Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the reasons why uh, a show like this works well with two people as opposed to a monologue with just one host is that philosophy is dialogue. And so many philosophers looked upon their own work as a dialogue. Plato wrote in dialogues, uh, David Hume, uh, Rene Descartes talked about meditations, but it was obvious from the writing that the meditations were to be shared with others to get them to do the same thing. And so philosophy is certainly a, a dialogue process, something that cannot be done, I would think, in isolation. 
I mean, if I was just talking to the wall, I wouldn't be doing philosophy. No, not at all. And in fact, there's another good way to distinguish philosophy from religion because frequently in religion, people are discouraged from asking questions. They're told they already have the truth. There's no need to go beyond. But in philosophy, we dialogue to test ideas against one another and, and to assess one another's ideas. Now, one of the things I know philosophy is bound to be misunderstood for uh, is this, this notion of, of Spinoza's being a disturber of the peace. Or even, uh, we, we, we can go back even further than that, Socrates, who was accused of corrupting the youth, uh, which I'm not sure we should aspire to corrupting them in the sense that we think about it today. But um, when I was a student in philosophy, I remember very vividly the class I took in Introduction to Philosophy there were a couple students who were visibly worried pretty much every class that the instructor was going to say something the purpose of which was to destroy their beliefs but philosophy really doesn't set out to tear down anything does it no no and by the same token neither does religion um both aspire to satisfy the need for wonder but in the end anyone who teaches religion or anyone who teaches philosophy is going to be a disturber of the peace a disturber of the status quo because ideas are challenging and disconcerting. It doesn't seem to me you can seek the truth in calm and, and complacency. You've got to be able to upset yourself and even upset other people in the process. Yeah, uh, I think that's, uh, that's a good way of looking at it. Even though it... Uh it's a little bit painful. Uh, something good can come out of it. In that respect, uh, philosophy uh, may be viewed uh, like medicine. In fact, there's a there's a quote from uh, Epicurus, uh, ancient philosopher, who said, "Vain is the word of a philosopher which does not heal the suffering of man. For just as there's no profit in medicine if it doesn't expel uh, diseases of the body, so there's no uh, no profit in philosophy either." if it doesn't expel suffering of the mind. And so I, I think that's a, a useful way of thinking about it. I mean, it's oftentimes an unpleasant experience to, to, to go to the doctor or the dentist, but something good comes of it. Yeah, a lot of people say that philosophy is just a, kind of an up-in-the-air thing and has no useful application to modern life. But what Epictetus is saying is that philosophy should result in some practical good. So... Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the, the idea of philosophy just being up in the air because back in those days, let's say a couple couple thousand years ago in particular, uh, that was how not only philosophers saw philosophy, but people saw philosophy that way. They, they would actually, believe it or not, go to a philosopher for, uh, for some advice and counsel. But now, somehow, it, it does seem so esoteric and so um, abstract that it's... People, I, I, sometimes I get the sense people have the reaction, well, it's great that you're talking about these questions that I really am interested in, but you're not providing anything but a bunch of unfocused uh, abstraction, and you're not, not helping me. Yeah, and that's precisely what a philosopher does. A philosopher helps people to focus. For example, this, a general question that a lot of us have is, what is the meaning of my life? Now, at first, that seems kind of unfocused, but... It does focus on you, on me, on my life. And we want to get a grip on that somehow. Is there a purpose? to? Am I going anywhere with my life? And a philosopher 
seeks to answer that and takes us down a road and helps us focus. For example, um, is this all there is to life? Does it end here? Is this world all there is? Is there another world? Both philosophy and religion deal with that question, but a philosopher tries to use reason to see if there is any way to answer that question. Is this all there is? We have different answers from Plato, different answers from Aristotle. Of course, that raises a, a, another question, which is, once we get all these different answers, how do we go about figuring out what to do with them? Because, like you say, there, there are these different uh, answers that sometimes are, are irreconcilable, aren't they? Sure. They seem to contradict one another. And that's where we have to use another tool to help us focus, and that tool is called logic. It's a branch of philosophy that helps to think well, to do good, solid, critical thinking. And who is there who doesn't want to be a good thinker, doesn't want to be called a good thinker, doesn't want to be called a sensible person? Well, a sensible person is someone who thinks correctly, and that's a very important part of philosophy. Yeah, that's that's an interesting presumption that um, I often tell my students in introductory philosophy very, very early on that philosophy in general, but logic especially, makes a presumption that there is such a thing as a correct way of thinking. Yes. There is such a thing as good rules of reason, and of course if there are good rules of reason, there have got to be bad uh, practices of reason yes. as well. And we, we're against those, I suppose. Yes. And a philosopher is somebody who can, who can help clarify what is faulty thinking, what is correct thinking. You know, what we've in essence done here uh, just sort of in a casual way is talk about a couple of very important areas of philosophy, right? Uh, yeah, we've discussed uh, metaphysics and, and logic, two of the branches of philosophy, and we we're talking about correct thinking. And if there's correct thinking, there's got to be incorrect thinking. How do you know the difference? So knowledge becomes a real problem for philosophy. In fact, people wonder about the correctness of their knowledge. Do we know anything for sure? How are we sure that we know? And that's a branch of philosophy called epistemology. And that's divided philosophers ever since. And uh, I guess the other area that we've actually addressed as well is uh, philosophy of religion, or philosophy and religion, which mm -hmm. uh, there, there are connections there, certainly. Uh, hopefully, some of what we say doesn't get misinterpreted as simply philosophy being outright hostile to religion. I mean, they do differ, certainly, in, in method and approach, but uh, there are many cases of philosophers who are very sympathetic to religion. Right? We'll be talking about some of them. Absolutely. St. Thomas, Thomas Aquinas, for one. Augustine. Um, even Plotinus added the religious element to Plato. Um, the very word metaphysics, people sometimes say, means after the physical. What, what comes after the physical world? Is there anything beyond the physical world? And both religion and philosophy seek to uh, explore that. So, yeah, and we're going to explore uh, each of those areas in quite a lot of detail uh, throughout the course of uh, these podcasts, uh, sometimes in general, but oftentimes, which I think is very useful, by looking at specific philosophical theories that people like Augustine talked about or, or Aquinas or Descartes, uh, which I think sometimes leads to a, a subject of frustration as well among students, getting back to this idea of competing uh, ideas. But maybe uh, we can take a little break and then we'll pick up on that 
uh, after the okay. break. Good. You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Okay, we're back. This is Radio Free Philosophy, and I'm Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Urquhart. And uh, you wanted to pick up on something that we were talking about before the break, about the uh, areas of philosophy. Yes, you were talking about competing uh, schools of philosophy, and they are especially divided over the issue of knowledge, and that's the field of epistemology. How do we know anything? Do we know anything? How can we trust our knowledge? For example, in the uh, Middle Ages, the most popular philosophy in the universities was called scholasticism. It was a, an offshoot of Aristotle. And basically it said that, in fact I'll use the Latin, nihil est in intellectu quod non prius furit in sensu. There is nothing in the mind which was not in the senses. So all knowledge had to come through the senses, the five senses. And that was a standard um, supposition all through the Middle Ages, that all knowledge comes through the senses. Now, Descartes, at the end of the Middle Ages, in the 17th century, didn't like that. He didn't think we could trust our senses. So he's famous for saying we should doubt all our knowledge that came to us through the senses and only trust our reason. And that formed a a real dichotomy between mind and matter and a, a kind of a distrust of material knowledge. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate at this point because I know what some people are going to say, which is, well, you know, you're dealing there with, with two extremes, but how come we can't uh, just compromise and have some sort of uh, meeting in the middle? And I often tell my students, well, but these ideas are fundamentally incompatible, so there is no middle. I mean, if you say all knowledge comes from the senses, you can't also say, yeah, but a little bit of it is comes from reason or, or is innate. Because you're saying all in both cases. Or is there a r- room in the middle for something? Well, when you're talking about extremes, usually the answer lies somewhere in the middle. And philosophers have, have often sought a middle ground. Um, because one of the extremes from the scholastics, who said that all knowledge comes from the senses, was, for example, the British empiricists who said we can't really trust our senses completely, and we have someone like Hume doubting that um, our observations are worth anything at all. And this led, say, someone like Kant to throw up his hands in despair and say we must find a middle ground and say certainly there is some knowledge that comes to us from reason that we can trust completely. And that's kind of a middle ground. Now, I've heard this before about uh, scholasticism since you brought that up, so I'll just ask because I'm not sure I know the answer to this. They were very much interested in knowledge coming from sense experience, but they didn't do any experimentation, did they? Any what we would call scientific experimentation. Well, interestingly enough, one of them, Francis Bacon, was a scientist. And um, interestingly enough also, Aristotle, from whom a lot of scholasticism comes, one of the early Greek philosophers, was actually a biologist himself. 
So scholasticism always stressed the unity of body and mind, that we can't take them apart. But they are two different entities, but they can't be seen apart from one another. Now, did Descartes, uh, we're getting kind of into some more detailed stuff that we'll probably cover in a later uh, uh, episode, but uh, did Descartes kind of represent the first systematic break with that idea yes. that there's a unity? Yes. You and that's kind do. of, uh, some people say that's made all the difference. Other people say, well, that's done all the damage ever since. That's uh, exactly right. J- James Burke, the historian I was talking about a little bit earlier, uh, once said, uh, uh, you know, he blames Descartes for everything. It's <laughs> called Cartesian dualism, the separation of the mind from the body. And that has disastrous consequences for many people. But there's a perfect example of one of the things I really think is very important to talk about in a philosophy class continuously, which is that these ideas, however esoteric they seem to us, do have real tangible consequences. Absolutely, practical consequences in the real world. To say that philosophy is impractical is just not to understand philosophy at all. There's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Ideas motivate us to do things. That's that's another interesting way of thinking about it because sometimes the reason a philosophical idea fails is not necessarily because it's a bad idea but because the time for it has not come right i mean it's a it's bad timing that's right um, i know there's probably dozens of examples we could go through but it seems like to me one of them is something that you've alluded to before this idea of empiricism because empiricism didn't flourish in the same way in the middle ages as it did a few centuries later when the British empiricists came along and really turned it into a thriving uh, enterprise, mainly because of the timing of that in the scientific revolution. Of course, because in order for empiricism to thrive, you had to have the instruments yeah, exactly. of science. Right. And we're talking about an age um, before the British empiricists when, when, when there weren't such things as, as microscopes or telescopes even. Um, you can't have Galileo doubting the accepted wisdom of, that the Earth is the center of the universe, unless he had a, a telescope to see that uh, two moons were moving around Jupiter. And so I suspect that more than anything is what gives people the impression that ideas don't matter because they're looking at ideas but maybe looking at them in a historical context where they, they couldn't have done much with the idea anyway. Certainly. I mean, uh, th- you know, think about da Vinci, not necessarily a philosopher, but all the things that he came up with in terms of practical ideas that never got invented because they just didn't have the other ideas and the mechanics to do it. You know, helicopters, supposedly he uh, had some designs uh, for rudimentary helicopters and and, uh, military instruments. And you ask the question, well, how come they didn't get uh, built? Well, they just didn't have the other mechanisms and ideas to, uh, to make it happen. Sure, and the idea of democracy, for example, in political philosophy, which is another branch of philosophy, um, we wonder about how long, why did it take so long for that to flourish? Well, it needed, for example, like a fresh start, uh, a new beginning, like the uh, the continent of America, um, which was not uh, hindered by all these centuries-old traditions of monarchy. Um, democracy was an idea whose time had come in America. And that's, uh, I think that's true for, for many philosophical ideas. And so there might be some ideas that we're, uh, we're playing with now that whose time itself hasn't come. Could be. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when students look at the ideas and say, yeah, but there's nothing here for me, well, 
you never know what might be relevant in, in 50 years. Um, I, I know I, I hear all the time people say, but, but that's not relevant. And I ask them, well, how in the world do you know that that's not relevant until you found out about it. That's right. And how do you know that something that's not relevant now might not be relevant in 50 years? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an economist, a very famous economist, who was also philosophically sophisticated, uh, John Maynard Keynes, who talked a lot about this notion of, of ideas and really illustrated a kind of a potentially dangerous point to this because he, he pointed out that the ideas of economists and political philosophers, not only the ones that are right but the ones that are wrong, have a major influence in fact, he, he said the world is ruled by little else, but many people aren't aware of it. And that's the worst thing, is to be influenced by an idea that you're not even aware of. And so there, again, is where philosophy can provide a really valuable service to, to let people know these are the ideas and what people thought about them that you are being influenced by. That's right. If anyone has any doubts about the power of an idea, just look at something like Marxism, for example. Um, Marx studied the works of Hegel who said that all reality comes about as a conflict, a clash between ideas. Uh, one idea clashes with another and forms a new, a new synthesis. And Marx saw that in terms of economic realities. He saw economic states, ideas about how to organize the economy of, of a community clashing with other ideas. And the ultimate um, result of that was the, the Russian Revolution. So... Yeah, we can uh, never doubt the power of an idea. Particularly uh, destructive consequences, mm-hmm. but consequences nonetheless. Uh, speaking of the Russian Revolution, I know one of the, the major writers on this, uh, Richard Pipes, uh, in a book titled The Russian Revolution, talks extensively about how the empiricist also contributed to that. The idea, uh, Locke was very, very afraid of the, the theory of innate ideas precisely because he thought it would help to back up a monarchy. And the irony uh-huh. is that it ended up uh, the empiricist idea of a blank, sla- blank, blank slate tabula rasa mm-hmm. uh, actually helped in part to inspire uh, 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 the Marxists because their view was, well, if you have a blank slate, we can make any kind of changes to it that we want, including, of course, social changes, which they were very interested in. Very so again, these are yeah. these ideas that mm-hmm. have uh, very, very powerful consequences. Yes, they do. Uh, we've only got you know a few more minutes left in this episode, so maybe one thing we can talk about just to sort of end things is we've we've kind of talked about the areas of philosophy and how ideas do have consequences. But something that always frustrates me when I when I talk about philosophy is how philosophers themselves have kind of made it difficult for people to see that their ideas are so useful. I mean, they are useful and. Of course, we know that, but we've been studying philosophy for years. But, I, I, I mean, maybe it's just bad marketing that philosophers have not been able to communicate that they're really doing something useful. That's true. But if anyone has any doubt about the usefulness of philosophy, just look at the other branch called ethics. And we can close on that note, but um, philosophy tries to investigate through ethics what is the right course of action? What's the right thing to do? What's the difference between right and wrong? And there is no person on earth who is not confronted by moral choices every single day of their lives. And yeah, that definitely. Is, it's it's, it's yeah. extremely practical. So when we see the differences in philosophers saying this is the right way to go or that's the wrong way to go, then philosophers have a major impact on our lives every day. 
And so uh, given that impact, it's probably better that we know about what they're up to rather than letting them beetle away uh, in a corner somewhere and we have no idea what's going on. Knowledge is power. Exactly. We have to arm ourselves with that knowledge, too, so we can defend ourselves against erroneous ideas or, or be aware that there are competing ethical principles. So uh, that, that might be a good place to end and uh, sort of encourage uh, everyone who's listening to think about philosophy uh, as a beneficial thing in that respect, to arm yourself against uh, people who are really vying for your attention. I mean, if you think about it, all the messages that we're, we're saturated with every day from all kinds of sources, people vying for our attention through the currency of ideas, and so philosophy uh, maybe helps sift through some of that. Yes, and having those ideas makes us much better than mere robots who are pushed and pulled in every direction by impulses we can't understand. If we have ideas, we know about ideas, and the competition between them, we can make better choices, make freer choices, I would say. And speaking of ideas, I think uh, one of the episodes we're going to do very soon uh, next is uh, on Plato, whose whole theory was about ideas, of course. Yes, it is. So uh, maybe we'll take that up uh, next week. And until then, this has been uh, Radio Free Philosophy. And it's been a pleasure talking with you.